Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Future of AppSec. Today, I have Steve Springett with me on this episode. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, a lot of you might be familiar with Steve. You might have seen his name in many different places. Just to give you a very brief introduction, Steve uh, leads the OWASP dependency track project. He is also leading the OWASP software component verification standard project. He's on the chair of uh, OWASP Cyclone DX working group. And he, as an operator, he currently is at uh, ServiceNow leading product security. Steve, why don't you give a little bit detailed introduction about yourself, your background, and what do you do on your day-to-day basis? Absolutely. So I contribute an awful lot of my time to open source efforts uh, in the name of security. So I contribute to a lot of different OWASP projects, as you mentioned, the uh, OWASP Dependency Track Project, which is a often cited as a reference implementation for how to consume and analyze SPOMs. I also am the chair of the OWASP Cyclone DX uh, core working group, which is a leading SBOM format. It goes well beyond SBOMs and supports other types of bombs as well. And then uh, I'm the co-author of the OWASP Software Component Verification Standard, or SCBS, which is a way for organizations to measure and improve their software supply chain assurance. SCBS is referenced in its entirety in NIST SSDF, so um, together with the, the other co-authors, we're, we're really proud of that work. And then what I actually get paid to do <laughs> is leading a team of security architects at ServiceNow where we help uh, the thousands of developers in the organization actually build and, and deliver secure and resilient software. That's phenomenal. And I love the fact that the projects that you're working on, those are having meaningful impact on a day-to-day basis to so many security teams across the whole world. It is phenomenal. How do you get time to do all of this? <laughs> uh, less sleep than I would like. Yeah. However, you know, it is not possible to get all this done. Is you know, you need a community behind you. So a lot of what I do also is really trying to build community and uh, get people as excited about this as I am. And I've been fortunate enough to have built that community. And when you have people that are engaged and excited and really on the same mission as what it is that you're trying to accomplish, you can do remarkable things. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I think that's the core value a lot of people get from engaging with OWASP and, and similar communities, especially OWASP. I've been to many, many chapter meetings locally and also in other cities, and especially in geos where the chapters are active. There's just so much value you can get out of just brainstorming, collaboration, meeting other people, at the end of the day, everyone's trying to solve sort of similar problems. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And when projects similar to what you're driving, they come together and help the community, uh, helps up-level everyone. Now, why engage in giving back to the community so much? Because, you know, I'll just share my story. Like, personally, when I was a practitioner myself, I found so much value and I wanted to give back. But I always struggled with, is this the right investment of my time? And 
what is the benefit I'm getting? So I did end up volunteering for ISSA and also OWASP in some limited capacity, nowhere close to how much you have given back. But what keeps you going in engaging with OWASP? You know, I got into software supply chain later, actually. I got it into it in around uh, 2012. So I've been doing it for, well, coming up on 11 years now. But before that, I was doing physical supply chain for the pharmaceutical industry. We were tracking raw ingredients to the manufacturing process, wholesale distribution, all the way to your pharmacy shelves. So I was doing supply chain stuff on the physical side before that. But in 2012 or so, I had some requirements to be able to track the inventory of things that we were delivering to market. And these things were basically server appliances. These were before we had cloud native stuff everywhere, we would, you know, have these appliances. They were they were hardware, they were servers that had pre-configured operating system and applications and everything else on them. And the ask was easy. The ask was to track the inventory of everything that we sell. And that included the hardware, the firmware, the OS, the OS packages, the application, the application libraries. Fairly simple. But that led to the creation of the dependency track project and uh, later on the being able to extract that into a machine-readable format, the Cyclone DX project, to represent a bill of materials. So I was doing these projects for a while and they had a little bit of adoption. You know, we had a few hundred organizations using it on a good day. And then the executive order hit and all kinds of people that, you know, organizations really started to scramble to really understand what software bills and materials and how to operationalize it. And at that point, the projects, these two projects really started to balloon out. So we went from hundreds to thousands, and now we've got hundreds of thousands of organizations that actually use Cyclone DX on a, on a daily basis. So it's uh, the growth of these two projects has just been phenomenal. Now, I gave back to the, I started the SCVS project, which like I mentioned, it's a way for organizations to measure and approve software supply chain insurance because a lot of the talk about security, quote unquote, in a development context was really focused on vulnerabilities, right? Are you using a vulnerable component? And there's so many more dimensions to that that people just weren't talking about and that were really important, right? Solar Winds, for example, was a wake-up call to a lot of organizations because that was not a vulnerable component. That was something else in their pipeline. And we can describe those other things, and we do that in SCVS. So it was a way to educate others about the importance of some of these other dimensions as well. So that's a very interesting point, and I think it's a point that a lot of people miss, which is this is beyond just vulnerabilities. It's not the same thing as scanning your dependencies for vulnerabilities, and that's it, right? It's it's much more than that. So can you educate us on what those other factors are beyond just vulnerabilities? Yeah, you first of all have to know what you have. And we think this is an elementary concept, but a lot of organizations actually don't know what third-party components they have, or if they are running tools, the tools in some cases don't do a very good job. So truly knowing what you have in terms of inventory is kind of a starting point, right? We've had best practices in manufacturing and IT and OT for 
years now in terms of just knowing what you have in your environment. Knowing what you have in terms of inventory is one of those dimensions. And unfortunately, lots of organizations just don't have that insight. But beyond vulnerabilities, you know, things that you might want to consider are pedigree and provenance, right? Provenance being really the chain of custody and, and authorship. You know, who contributed to writing this particular library, for example? Uh, where did you get it from? That kind of information is important because there are ways to attack things in the future if you know where you got something from. Pedigree is really important as well. This is the concept of being able to track the DNA or the changes to components over time. Open source is the ultimate supply chain. Components are going to be modified, renamed, redistributed, infinitum, right? So being able to track what those modifications are, because what you have in your inventory might actually be a derivative of something else, and that something else could have a vulnerability, for example. So being able to track that lineage is, is really important. And there's all kinds of other aspects of this, you know, build environments and everything else that's, that's equally important as well. Right, right. So that makes sense. So one of the unique perspectives that you bring in is you actually spend time doing similar things outside of software in the, I believe you mentioned the pharmaceutical world and tracking ingredients and things like that. So let's draw some examples. So in that world, and I think similar examples also exist in the automobile sector as well, right? Similar things were done before, but in that kind of a setting and environment, what was the objective? Why were those industries building bill of materials? And how did, as an industry, what was a forcing function for all of them to start adopting it? Yeah. So we were doing, again, in the pharmaceutical industry, we were doing, it was kind of a bill of material, but it was also kind of a providence tracking device and almost like an attestation of what actually occurred. So it was more than just the ingredients. It was, it was other things as well. Because these were safety critical applications, right? You, we had to know within a fairly short amount of time, if something was tainted in the supply chain, we had to know exactly where it was tainted and how to recall that from pharmacy shelves if necessary. Likewise, I'm sure the automotive industry has something very, very similar. It's, it's the reason why they have recalls and they know exactly what models of cars and what year of cars, et cetera, need to be recalled. So we didn't necessarily have that same concept in software for whatever reason. Folks like Jeff Williams, who's, um, you know, he was the original author of the OAS Top 10 and the current founder and CTO, I think, of Contrast Security. You know, he's been speaking about, you know, having a bill of materials for software for well over a decade. Uh, Josh Corman, same thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's really until recently that we've, that we've really started to do in the software industry, what other industries have been doing for decades, really. Yeah. Do you think the recent traction that this space is getting, the attention that S-Bombs and uh, this is getting, do you think that's primarily coming from the executive order or there is also interest from non-federal sector as well? There's definitely interest from non-federal sectors. Yes, the federal government, they have a large budget. And when they want to buy software, they buy a lot of it. And that has a downstream impact on pretty much any software vendor. So that has certainly contributed. However, I think, in my opinion, without any evidence to back this up, I think that many of us in the industry have really just gotten breach fatigue. We are 
tired of constant supply chain attacks, and we don't want to be the victims of those uh, future attacks, right? We, we don't want our employers to be on the front page of, you know, a national newspaper for reasons that might be harmful to the brand. So we try to protect our own organizations. And I think SBOM is just, it's not all the one-all, be-all, but it does provide one data point. But there are other things that organizations should be looking at as well. So I think SBOM and, and software supply chain security in general is just gaining popularity because people have been woken up and are now paying attention about just how wide of a problem this, this actually is. And most of it is currently unsolved. Yeah. Yeah. So let me pressure test this a little bit. So let's say we start generating S-bombs and for the sake of the conversation, let's take the federal government executive order out of this uh, equation because that's a whole different requirement. But we start generating S-bombs and the common question that I hear from most other practitioners is, okay, we have the S-bomb. It's a lot of data. What do you do with it? Yeah. Great question. That's question number one usually, right? Even before that, sometimes it's, well, how do I share it? which mm -hmm. is another set of problems that folks, you know, OWASP is working on. There's other folks working on that as well. But sharing is, is certainly the number one issue, in my opinion, uh, especially if you have tens of thousands of vendors in your environment. How do you scale requesting SBOMs? How do you scale obtaining those SBOMs without any manual effort, right? That's a, currently an unsolved problem. But yeah, after the sharing aspect, what do you do with it? This is where applications like dependency track come into play. And it's interesting to kind of have seen the growth of dependency track. I, you know, as I mentioned, we started out very humble. We had, you know, maybe a hundred organizations using it. Now we have hundreds of thousands and on a yearly or wait, on a monthly basis, this is just the floor numbers that we know it's that the actual numbers are, are probably going to be much greater. But on a monthly basis, dependency track systems analyze over 300 million uh, software components every single month. And um, that's just one system that's responsible for, for doing this, right? There's other things other than dependency track that can also do these. And I think you're going to see the emergence of many enterprise companies. Uh, I just happen to work for one, but I think many enterprise companies are going to start offering enterprise solutions to tackle this problem as well. because if you're a software company and you have maybe, you know, a thousand vendors that you do business with, that's great. You know, you can use something like dependency track. However, if you're like a really large organization with hundreds of thousands of employees and millions of devices in your environment, you need something a little bit more scalable than something like dependency. So and I think you're going to see the emergence of, of more enterprise solutions. And that kind of goes into the, your answer of, What's next? What do I do with it? But once you have it, right, you can perform a lot of different use cases. And it really depends on the role of the stakeholder and what type of analysis that that, that role requires, right? Yeah, you can do vulnerability analysis, but you can do, you know, license analysis. You can do vendor risk analysis. You can do analysis for FOSI, which is foreign, what is it, FOSI, foreign ownership control and influence. You can do all different kinds of analysis once you have the SBOM, but of course you're going to need the data fields populated to be able to support your, your specific use cases. Right, right. 
Yeah. So if you have licensing information, sort of build integrity or, you know, the, the provenance information associated with it, you can potentially, I can see a world where you can get a higher confidence of doing business with a software vendor when you have all of those information with you. Now, on the other hand, the concern that I've seen from some of the CISOs who are in that capacity of being a software vendor, they say their opinion is, oh, okay, I'm okay to share SBOMs, but a lot of times it ends up being a conversation of, well, you have all these dependencies with X number of vulnerabilities. Why haven't you fixed it yet? But the reality is it's a risk conversation and a vast majority of it may not be presenting a risk to the organization, to the software that they're shipping. So it eventually ends up being a giant waste of everyone's time because then you're talking about the exact same thing. Like, okay, this is not a risk. This is a risk and here's why. And it creates this friction from adopting this way of exchanging this information because then the software vendors sort of hesitate to share that data just because they know they'll have to end up spending time explaining all of that stuff. So do you have any ideas on like what a, a good solution to that could look like maybe in the future? Yeah, we've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, SBOM is basically the vehicle for which transparency can be realized, right? It's just one of many different possible solutions for that. But that's the one, that's the solution that the the industry has kind of gone forward with. But as you mentioned, you know, once you provide an SBOM, consumers are going to analyze that SBOM and they're going to discover that you have a lot of vulnerabilities in your application. Now, depending on the security vendor that you get statistics from, upwards of 90% of those vulnerable components are not actually going to be exploitable in the context of the application that they're running in. And the last thing that software vendors want to do is increase, unnecessarily increase their support cost by having customers, you know, waste their time reporting vulnerabilities that have no impact on the product, right? So it's a waste of both the customer's time, it's a waste of the vendor's time, and more importantly, it negatively impacts that customer experience, which no CEO wants, right? So there's this concept called VEX, or Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange, and it is primarily designed to, you know, if, if SBOM is the thing that turns the lights on because you've analyzed it, VEX is the thing that turns the lights off. So VEX, you can describe all the vulnerabilities that you are not affected by, or maybe you are, and what are you going to do about it in the future? Which is good, right? It reduces the costs that vendors have to subject themselves for support. I think it also will increase customer experience as well. And they're not going to waste their time phoning vendors about things that don't matter. But VEX itself, I think, is kind of a missed opportunity because it doesn't represent risk. And um, I'll give you a really good example of that. I might have an IoT device. And on that IoT device, you know, I have maybe a log for shell vulnerability, right? You know, CVE 10.0, worst that you can get. And that vulnerability is only exploitable to administrators of that device, right? And I have to be authenticated to do it. Now, is the severity critical? Yes. Is the risk any more than what I had without that vulnerability? Does exploiting that vulnerability actually increase risk? No, it doesn't. 
And VEX kind of misses the mark in actually communicating that. So, you know, within OWASP, we have these concepts of builders, breakers, and defenders, right? Every OWASP project, every OWASP conference, these are our key, you know, audiences that we speak to. And a lot of the tools that I build and specifications that I work on is very focused on the builder and very focused on the defender. And VEX doesn't itself doesn't actually uh, communicate risk, but the Cyclone DX build material standard, which supports VEX and some other stuff that complements VEX, does communicate risk. So you can describe these types of scenarios and you can apply additional risk ratings on top of that. So you can communicate to the customer in terms of risk, which I think is really important. Yeah. So Cyclone DX is the common communication language. Am I understanding correctly? That would effectively communicate the risk information. Okay. So I've been very excited about Cyclone DX since it launched. I have felt the pain of multiple different tools communicating different data points and not having an easy way to make sense of it, especially, you know, if you switch from an open source system to a commercial and switching between tools within the commercial systems as well. Everyone talks about things in a different language. So I think there was a time when maybe last year or a couple of years ago when GitHub also started supporting Cyclone DX ingestion data format from other systems, which is pretty exciting. I haven't kept myself updated on that. Have you seen Cyclone DX getting broader adoption in different use cases as well? Yes. Right now we're tracking over 190 tools, I think, on the Cyclone DX Tool Center. Those are just the tools that we know about. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more and especially things that are not necessarily public that organizations have built as well. So realistically, there's probably thousands of tools. The adoption has been pretty impressive. I mean, you know, when you design something, whether it's a spec or whether it's an application, you have kind of a a vision of how people will use that. And every time you build something, you're going to be surprised at how people actually use it. Right. I talk about dependency track being a system for, you know, analyzing S bombs. And that's what it's designed for. And because of a lack of consumption tools, I know of use cases where it's being used to track the individual pacemakers implanted in patients and tracking the builds of materials on those individual pacemakers. You know, when you design something, you're you're really surprised all the time. Guidance systems on F35s are described in Cyclone DX today. I did not, not envision that, but these are real use cases that, that people are using it for. Satellite communications and defense systems as well. So it's really interesting how people take a spec and if you make it prescriptive with enough guardrails in place so that they, you know, prevent them from shooting themselves in the foot, you can accomplish some really interesting use cases that you never would have imagined otherwise. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I was not aware of all these variety of use cases. I think that just talks to the underlying strong foundation that is built with Cyclone DX. Now, that's also pretty important to drive more maturity adoption of just, you know, software supply chain in general and bring more transparency across end to end. Now, typically what I'd love to do with with the guest on this podcast is just get a view of how you define software supply chain security. I've asked that question to several people. A lot of them respond to it differently. I'd love to know your definition of software supply chain security. 
That's a hard one. <laughs> That's probably the hardest question you could ask an expert in this field. I think you first have to start out with defining the software supply chain because it goes beyond just things that you build. It goes beyond your libraries. It goes beyond your compilers and your build system and all this. Your software supply chain goes into things like, you know, your vending machines that run software and they're connected in your enterprise to your IoT and OT type devices that are controlling access to, you know, your physical infrastructure, to cameras and mobile apps and, and everything else, plugins for Zoom and Outlook, plugins for your IDEs. The software supply chain is pretty much everything that runs software. And then you have to define security. What is security, right? Well, security is vulnerabilities, but it's it's really a lot of other things as well, right? We talked about, you know, vendor risk management, supply chain management. We can talk about the behavioral aspects of vendors. For example, are they have they recently had some financial things that might impact their motivations to actually do something for security? So there's there's all different kinds of dimensions, I think, that come into security. So it's not just things that can go, like let's just say, wrong, but it's all your abuse cases for the things that you thought would be right. So it's more of a hard problem. I don't know of a single definition that encompasses everything. It is quite massive, which is why a lot of folks actually talk about software supply chain from their own respective roles, right? A DevOps practitioner is going to talk about software supply chain from the perspective of building and delivering software. And that's great, but that's a small part of the overall software supply chain. Right. Yeah. And uh, this question came about because I was talking to one of the friends of mine, he's a CISO, and he was telling me that his board one day told him, hey, we should do something about software supply chain security. Now, they probably were discussing with boards of other companies and whatnot. So I asked him, like, hey, so what does this mean for you? It's like, I have no idea how to figure it out. Now, he's a super smart person. He knows, like he's been in software security for many, many years. But it talks about like the complexity of this, which is even people who've been in this industry for a long time, when their leadership says, or somebody makes a decision that let's think about software supply chain security, or do we even want to invest in it? There's just so many things that you have to understand is what is the definition that's relevant to your business? What is the definition that's appropriate for this stage of the company? What can you reasonably do? And then maybe start chipping away at this multifaceted problem. Absolutely. You know, in my day job, I do a lot of threat modeling and that sort of thing. We do adversarial modeling. We do attack trees and all these different things. Once you actually define what your software supply chain is within your enterprise. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you're never going to perfect everything, but you can use some of these techniques, adversarial modeling, attack trees, et cetera, especially when you put the dollar values on things, right? Because your adversaries are most likely going to go for the most cost-effective way to compromise your environment. And you can apply all these other types of techniques to help you identify what things that you should probably harden first. Yeah. Is there an established pattern or methodology for threat modeling software supply chain security risks? I'm not aware of one. 
I mean, there's obviously multiple methodologies for threat modeling itself. You've got stride, pasta, and a bunch of other things. I really like pasta, but it's fairly heavyweight. It doesn't really subject itself to a very agile development. But if you go outside of that agile world and maybe you're threat modeling, you know, all of your OT infrastructure, well, something like pasta might actually be really beneficial. But I'm not aware of anything that's specific to software supply chain security in terms of a methodology. Yeah, you know, it might be interesting for, as an industry, for us to explore this. Because, and, and the reason I say that is because I've talked to many people, for example, there's a category of companies who ship on-prem software, like imagine monitoring agents or even things like solar winds that go into people's environments. Those types of companies that are shipping on-premise software agents, software or even appliances or what have you, that tends to be a little bit of a different risk model as compared to a company that is making IoT devices and going into different places. As compared to a SaaS software company, which is not shipping on-prem, but has potentially fairly open uh, build environment or CICD environment, collaborating with external third parties, outsourced developers, what have you. So there's just so many different business-specific things that introduce different types of risks. I think it would be easier for people who, who are just getting into the concept, who are learning about software supply chain security. It might give them a structured framework of you know, what they should look at and you know, get started on it quickly. No, that's a great idea. You should start that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish the, I was uh, the, enough to be able to do that. But <laughs> Yeah, so maybe we can wrangle some threat modeling experts to come together and create something. The software component verification standard that I was mentioning, it's still based on the development perspective, right? Developing software. And it's a good place to start, right? You've got SCVS. Salsa is a newer framework. It's not as wide in terms of breadth but it's deeper in terms of what it prescribes. But either one of these things, right? It's, they're great for organizations to get started one. I don't care, just pick one and go all in on it. Because doing nothing, I think, is gonna be trouble for a lot of organizations. Right. So pick one of these frameworks and you, know, you don't have to get perfection immediately. Both of these frameworks allow you to measure and improve over time, which I think yeah. is truly important. Makes sense. Now, Steve, you're very familiar with what's going on in this space today. Uh, you have a lot of data. You're in the front lines of this. How do you see this changing over the next three to five years? This meaning the, this world of software supply chain security, is it taking a completely different direction or what do you foresee happening in the next three to five years? I see, you know, right now we have concepts for like cloud observability which is mainly focused on, you know, cloud systems and their performance aspects, right? I hope that we can have some type of observability type of platform that would look at our software supply chain from a holistic view. And, you know, we have enough ML today and we know that when you tightly scope ML to more purpose-driven task, it can do exceptionally well. So if you combine these two concepts together, I think in the future, we will have some type of, of way to understand what the risks are in this massive thing that we call the software supply chain. But we're, I think, just entering the infancy right now. It's going to take several, several years just to be able to get to that point, I think. Yeah. What do you think will be the drivers that will help us get there faster? 
Well, the U.S. federal government, governments around the world that are also doing very similar things, I think they will continue to be drivers. I think capitalism is a fantastic driver. You know, organizations are already demanding software bills and materials from their vendors. And this will eventually lead to gradual improvement from those vendors in terms of maintaining, you know, hygiene of their components and keeping things up to date and vulnerability free and and this sort of thing. It's also going to encourage better practices in terms of how they develop and deliver software and doing so more securely, right? I think in the future, organizations will, beyond just SBOMs for procurement, they'll start to rely on different types of attestations, right? Attestations for, you know, SCVS or Salsa attestations in terms of, hey, we are Salsa level two or Salsa level three or SSDF attestations as well. So I think all these things, I think capitalism is a fantastic motivator. Last thing that wants to, you know, an organization wants to have happen is a salesperson loses sales because their development team is not keeping up with the demands of their, of their customers. So I think it's a great motivating factor. Phenomenal, Steve. And on behalf of the rest of the security industry, I thank you for helping our community get there faster with all your work in different projects. Thank you for spending time on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. I'm at doing it all alone. So if you are interested in any of these topics, uh, we have a pretty vibrant community. Uh, visit OWASP.org slash Slack or CycloneDX.org slash Slack to get involved. We've got thousands of contributors uh, that are participating in some of these projects. Incredible. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.